You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. Whether you know it or not, there's queer people that are working amongst you to eradicate expropriation. We're everywhere. So it really is a matter of how much is the Marxist movement, how much is the labor movement going to embrace the queer people that are already in it, that are already fighting for it. And as soon as the labor movement does that, as soon as the Marxist movement does that, it's queer Marxism. It's a queer internationalist movement. On this episode of Labor Wave, we speak with Holly Lewis, an assistant professor of philosophy at Texas State University and the author of The Politics of Everybody, Feminism, Queer Theory, and Marxism at the Intersection. It's commonly understood within the academy that the terms man, woman, and other are socially constructed and that their meanings are maintained by the current political order. But few thinkers have attempted to reconcile that knowledge, which is rooted in Marxism, with queer theory. The few who have, meanwhile, usually attempt to do so through issues of libidinal desire and sexual expression. In The Politics of Everybody, Holly Lewis argues powerfully that the emphasis on desire, though seemingly innocuous, is actually symptomatic of neoliberal habits of thought, and consequently is responsible for a continued focus on the limited politics of identity. Instead, Lewis shows, we should look to the arena of body production, categorization, and exclusion Only through such a reorientation can we create a politics of liberation that is truly inclusive and grounded in lived experience. We highly recommend that folks engage with this book. Its analysis is very rich and insightful. On this episode, we focus primarily on the conclusions that are offered in the book by Holly Lewis and give her an opportunity to walk us through each one of them. This episode comes at a moment of deep global crisis, and the crisis itself has exposed the human tendencies towards both collaboration and mutual aid, as well as towards self-destruction, competition, and fierce battling over scarce resources. As one way of responding to this crisis, LaborWave is going to start hosting a series of online social activities in order to continue having connections with one another while we're practicing physical distance. We are very heartened by the practices of social solidarity that people are embodying right now and all the mutual aid networks that are coming about. So we're trying to use this platform and this podcast to be creative and expand the ways that we interact with listeners. And what we want to do is invite all of our listeners to join us in an online book club that's going to be happening weekly for the foreseeable future. The first book we're going to read together is offered for free as an ebook by Verso Books and it's Feminism for the 99% a Manifesto. You can get all of the information that you need on how to join the call, how to participate in the book club, on our website at laborwaveradio.com. It's also on our Facebook, and we're going to be posting it on our Twitter as well. The book club will officially launch on March 26th at 4 p.m. That's Pacific Standard Time. We're going to host it via a Zoom conference call, and again, all that information can be found at our website at laborwaveradio.com. 
Another offering we have upcoming from Labor Wave in collaboration with Opening Space for the Radical Imagination is our second episode in the mini-series After the Revolution. We speak with Gianpaolo Baiocchi on the political party after the revolution. So check that out. It should be coming out in just a couple of weeks, if not a little bit later. And also, we really encourage folks to join our online book club, and we're likely going to be hosting some online movie parties featuring various labor classics like Sorry to Bother You, Norma Ray, Mate Wan, and others. All that and more upcoming. So before we get into the conclusions, I just want to highlight the ambitious approach of this book. Because you say right off the bat that you're trying to speak to multiple audiences and quote that audience's third wave feminist and queer theorists who have commitments to gender and sexual liberation, but have little familiarity with Marxian economics. Marxists who want to go beyond facile dismissals of identity politics to better understand the relationship between the objective realities of material existence and the experience of that material existence, and those working to clarify their political and philosophical orientation towards gender. So, um, yeah, before the conclusions, why those audiences were you trying to speak to all at the same time? To a certain degree, these are the audiences that I am most often in conversation with. So they are the groups that I am aware of who are holding these uh, who were at the time the book was written in 2014, 2015. These were the groups who were, who were sort of talking past one another. And I wanted to put them in conversation with one another. Um, I'm sure that there are other groups that are, that are other, other categories of, of, of speakers that are talking about these things and thinkers, but those were the, were, were three groups of people that I felt um, qualified to, to put into conversation with one another. Um, two audiences, I, sh- I should say. So those were the reasons why I chose those three. Right. And uh, later in the conclusions, you mentioned about like politics of the fragment. And it seems like part of the reason is to try to piece together the fragmentation that's happening on the left and in political thinking in general to actually get back to something that's more of a whole. Is that right? It is. And at the same time, I think that one of the things that I say before I begin the conclusion is that solidarity means taking sides. So that when you say solidarity on the left, that's what's really important here is that it's not, you know, kind of a universal humanistic solidarity, but a solidarity amongst those who have, um, have, who chose, who choose to fight on the left. And, and that is the unity that I am, I am, I am interested in. Your book is really rich with analysis. I definitely encourage everybody to pour over it. It concludes with this chapter on 10 axioms towards a queer Marxist future. And what I was hoping we could do is take each of these axioms one at a time and allow you to elaborate on them. So the first one is the politics of the fragment should be replaced by an inclusive politics of everybody. Can you elaborate more on that? The first thing that I would say is that I, um, it is important for readers, particularly in the United States, to understand that I did write this book in 2014, 2015, and then it was, it was put out in, 20, in 2016. And to a certain degree, some of the, it's contributed in some of the debates that it's influenced. So some of this might seem 
really elementary now, but it, it wasn't at the time at all. Right. Um, it, it, it wasn't in any way. So when I say the politics of the fragment should be replaced by an inclusive politics of everybody, the not in, in not thinking about economics, what was happening in the 1990s because of that separation between economic thought and social thought, that, that, that artificial separation that happens when we move into this neoliberal era where the idea is that, that, that economics is just mathematics and it's, it's, uh, it's a science that you have to be initiated into in the bourgeois academy in order to understand it. And so we just don't think about those things, right? And to think about those things is probably you know, economistic anyway and reductive anyway, and we want to have a richer analysis. But what was happening through that separation was that people were looking at things through the framework of, of, of identity. And there were two ways that we were all looking at these issues through the framework of identity. And both of them kind of fell into the, the, the queer theory purview um, and sometimes were confused for one another, even by people making the arguments. And that is where you have uh, someone like Judith Butler, who's talking about our identities are created by the state. And that is how we have, um, how we're visible to the state. And so by queering up, in other words, by, you know, messing with our identities, by uh, reperforming them, not in a, in a, in a one-off way, but thinking them through on a lived day-to-day basis. And um, n- it was really an anti-identity politics is what I'm saying. On the other hand, there was this kind of movement towards hyper-analysis of the situatedness of every individual's gender and every individual's identity and how they fit within the system. And that kind of hyper-particularity, which was popular at the time, became a way for us to not be able to talk about mass politics, but also even group politics, right? Um, This came from a a group I was involved in in Philadelphia in 1995, where it just said, we're, we're not, we're getting rid of coalition work. We don't want to do any coalition work. So even, you know, amongst people that had this kind of solid identity, there was this refusal to work together. We we're all going to work tar- towards our aims. But of course, if you have an economic analysis, particularly of a Marxist analysis, you can't just separate the working class and have the working class fragmented everywhere um, and not working together in order to combat the problem. So that is where that the initial um, axiom comes from, that we need to have an inclusive Marxist politics. Because for me, the politics of everybody is a Marxist politics. It's a politics of, of, about the material social relations of everyone in the world. Well, and I think too, that when I read this first axiom, that you're also saying like the way we win, the way we have victories needs to be more than just on the level of decontextualizing and deconstructing language. Like I I really appreciate because in some variants of like uh, modern theory today, the focus on language and changing and purifying language seems to be the way people imagine the world actually changes, that that's all you have to do. I just want to read this quote because I, I think it's funny. 
but I also think it's really accurate. You're right. In post-structuralist variants of this model, the best one can do is be aware of how language is operating within you and construct yourself as a challenge to the structures and strictures of discourse. So instead of the prefigurative utopian slogan, be the change you want to see, this model of political consciousness suggests be the resistance you wish could exist but cannot exist because we are always already interpolated into language and by extension the state. I'm amused by it because I think it's a little satirical, the tone, but pretty spot on. So is that also why we need this inclusive politics of everybody that you're talking about? Yeah. And what's interesting is that after writing the book, I'm more convinced of this than ever because the first reception of the book was actually international. So I was going to speakers of, you know, people who don't speak English. So these kind of internecine debates about what we should call ourselves and how we should refer to ourselves and what that means. It doesn't necessarily it doesn't necessarily translate. So even beyond that, it it puts us into um, it separates us in a different way. It separates us as English language speakers. It separates us as English language speakers in a particular national experience or framework. So what we're actually doing is um, segregating ourselves off from the rest of the world, and we're creating a kind of micropolitics that is uh, geographically bound and that is linguistically bound that we may not even even know. Uh, So that's my first comment. And then the second one is the more that we're online, right? Like the problem of being very online. (laughs) Um, I think that this is also accelerating this problem because we're so often representing ourselves in terms of just text boxes right? And strings of text now that our experiences are disappearing into text in, in, in ways. For those of us who are very online, as I said, uh, certainly those who are not very online are not living that way at all and have a whole different set of experiences. So I think that even there's, there's even new, there's, there's more evidence for me now that we need to move away from this kind of politics. Now, to be very careful about this, on the other hand, um, arguing with people and attacking people, particularly online, because they're talking about their identities, is, is just as unhelpful. And one of the things that I'm really opposed to is treating class as if it's another identity, right? Making an identity politics out of class. Because when we make an identity politics out of class and we pose it to everyone else, what we're saying is that people that are working class are not in those other categories or not in in those other categories in important ways, right? And I think that that's why class analysis often gets characterized and caricatured as this kind of white male thing, right? Um, But that's because people are putting class in an identity framework, and it's not an identity. I think that that, what we're talking about is something entirely different when we're talking about class. And we're talking about the totality of capitalist relations and how they function and how they hurt people and how we need to work together in order to, to, to solve that problem. The second axiom towards a queer Marxist future, you write, is analyses of political economy should be concrete, dialectical, and gender sex inclusive. So can you talk more about that? Sure. Um, at the time, and, and this, is, this is a really rich area of research now, 
And it's only been taking off in the, in the past few years. And one of the things that I do in the book is I try to reorient discussions of sex and gender away from Frederick Ingalls, right? And towards Lisa Vogel's work, which looks at Marx's capital, right? So I'm trying to understand gender through Marx's capital, as opposed to this idea that gender comes from the creation of the family, the development of property, and then somehow these gender norms that come from this are not class-bound. Class and this is even Clara Zetkin had an, you know, uh, criticized Engels for this in saying that, okay, well, if gender inequity comes from, if gender inequality um, and gender violence comes from property relations, then why, are, why is there any sexism in the working class, right? And the, the answer was always sort of, you know, well, there's a parodying of the ruling class, and that's just a really thin analysis. But, you know, Lisa Vogel's work in the 1980s begins this, movement towards understanding how gender works within capitalism itself, right? How capitalism uses gender in order to create groups of people that take care of the workforce in particular ways so that it doesn't have to pay for it. <laughs> um, and how that kind of denigration in a market that says that you are equivalent to what, what your wage is means that you are worth nothing, right? And what kind, what kind of, um, you know, what kind of message does that send about, about worth? So Lisa Vogel's work and the subsequent work that's been done on, on Marxian social reproduction theory, I think really begins to, to talk to us about how capitalism uses gender and the concepts of, of gender identity in order to keep itself going and how it can't really exist without a category of people that are ideologically obligated to care for people. That brings us to what the family is and how the family operates. And when you're talking about queer oppression, I mean, queer oppression happens in and through the family. And at the time, there was a lot of, of arguments that sort of went like, if queer people oppose the family, then somehow we're anti-capitalist. And this really heavily impressed upon an individual politics of performative resistance that really privileged people that didn't have to take care of other people, right? So, so it, it was contradictory. And I wanted to, to begin conversations that could clarify. And going back to what you were saying earlier and how like class is understood often as an identity box and the identity of cis white men, which is pretty absurd when you look at who working class people really are. Without doing this analysis uh, in a queer and gender inclusive way, like you write here that the economics as a field just becomes like the purview of white men. So like this is like a danger in and of itself is that we continue to fail to have like a, a concrete class analysis that can really be robust and provide analyses that broaden our inclusion of everybody. 
Right. I mean, how can you have an analysis of workers if you're going with a caricature of what you think workers are or a snapshot of what workers were at a particular time and place in particular industries? Right. I mean, we know that even in the 19th century, we have little girls that are that are that are making candy and being scalded to death. Right. So, I mean, girls work, too, in child labor. We can't really have a rich understanding of the working class. So the philosopher Sandra Harding talks about this in terms of strong objectivity. Now, she's not a Marxist, but she talks about this in terms of strong objectivity, meaning that if you are excluding groups of people that ask questions and that create frameworks and that create frameworks for those questions, then you're not really seeking objectivity. You're really just talking amongst a group of people. And what seems to be objective and true amongst you is just, you know, your, your slant, right? And it's just kind of coming from your experience and your methods of tackling a problem. But if you want strong objectivity, then you need to have everybody included. And that's really what I'm going for here is strong objectivity, you know, but that also requires listening to people who are different than you that are coming from different positions. The third axiom that you write about is the intersectional model of oppression should be replaced with a unitary relational model. So I'll give you lots of time and space to elaborate on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I'm I'm really grateful that this has been interpreted because this is the only time where I use the word intersectional. I want to be I want it to be very clear in the book that this is I call it also the the vector model of oppression as opposed to use intersectionality you know the term intersectionality. The word intersectionality really kind of explodes in the 2010s and it means a whole it, it starts serving, the term starts serving a whole host of uh, uh, projects. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it starts becoming a buzzword to explain all kinds of social relations that move away from its, from its Black feminist origins, number one. And number two, I had something very specific to say about this. And that is the, the Marxist analysis is we're looking at material social relations, complex social relations. And when we look at identities and the, the, the complications of identities in terms of this idea of vectors interacting with one another, what we're doing is we're saying there's this thing called race that is gender independent, right? That at some point intersects with this thing called gender, which is race independent, and then it ends up recreating the very problem that it's trying to solve when we think of it that way. Now, at the same time, its locus of it, where, where it frames its questions, where it points its camera is at the individual body. And what is occluded in that, what is hidden, is where are all these vectors coming from? Where is the racism coming from? Where is the sexism coming from? So this is not an argument against concrete analyses of the ways that multiple uh, uh, oppressions interact uh, in human relationships. It's saying that just kind of throwing out the, world, the word intersectional and saying that that's 
the solution for it isn't going to get us anywhere. So when we're looking at a, a concrete situation, like, for example, if we're, we're trying to talk about um, the situation of Black lesbians in South Africa, uh, as opposed to Black lesbians in the United States or white lesbians in the United States, when we're doing that kind of concrete local analysis, what is called intersectionality is actually quite important because we're not trying to come up with a systemic understanding for what's going on globally, right? We're not talking about global material social relations. We're talking about concrete particulars. And once again, going back to that idea of strong objectivity, concrete particulars are really important. But those concrete particulars don't get us to a systemic analysis, the kind of systemic analysis that we need. So I would never tell people to abandon concrete particulars. What I'm talking about is moving away from this kind of vector model, as I talk about in the book, of saying there's this kind of uh, abstracted plane that racism exists on, and and there's this sort of abstract sexism, and that on the individual bodies, they, they merge with one another. Not helpful. In wanting to get to the concrete causal factors of where these things emerge and how they come from, you just, you, you talk about how without that, you know, disconnected from material life, you write, oppression seems as if it were born from ill will and bad ideas. And I think that goes back to the kind of like focus and uh, belief that language changes the world. It's like, it's just the ideas that need to be changed. Everything is in our mind already and constructed in that way. And all we have to do is basically unlearn it. And I think what you're pointing out is how limited that is an actual practice of changing the world. So this idea of um, one's identity is what one's epistemology is, or that what, what the, the way that you see the world and the way that you behave in the world. And I mean, there's certainly some element of truth in that. However, that's not... The cause, of, the cause of this is not your identity, right? The identity is the effect. The identity isn't the cause. And so if it boils down to that the history of racism is that white people have bad ideas, then you have to say, well, why, <laughs> right? Um, and, and I mean, that means that there just might be, that there has to be this, this thing, this real ontological thing called um, white people that's transhistorical who have ideas that come from this type of physiology and that gets into some really bad territory. Yeah. So I think that, that, that looking at identities doesn't, that identity, we're looking at the symptom instead of, and we're saying that the symptom is the cause. So that becomes really, once again, identities matter, but identities aren't what is initially causing the situations. The next axiom that you write about towards a queer Marxist future is being queer and trans is neither reactionary nor revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this was just a thorn in my side when I was <laughs> writing this at the time. You know, I mean, as a queer person, so many of the analyses were confusing affect with class position. And without, but once again, without an economic understanding, without an understanding or even a thought for social material relations, which once again was erased from our language, erased from our ability. We couldn't talk to each other. We did not have the framework for this. So without that, well, 
why are some people non-binary and other people um, binary? Well, the non-binary people are radical and the binary people are not radical. And therefore, the non-binary people are the oppressed and the binary people are the oppressors. And I mean, it was it was just kind of maddening. But so there was this kind of language that that not I mean, not just your gender, but 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 your your affect, right? If you kind of had a, a particular normie way of dressing or something, that was indicative of that you were an oppressor, right? Um, and that you were probably doing a host of oppressive things based on this, right? Like you were um, uh, kicking genderqueer youth of color out of you know, off your property. <laughs> but of course it's because, and I write about this in there, um, when we're talking about the issues that were going on in, in New York City at the time, the issue isn't between normative gay people and between queer youth of color. It was between landlords, <laughs> right? And it was between um, uh, working people and um, and uh, people who were, were oppressed. And, and that's what's going on. You have this landlord, non, non-landlord relation. You have, a, you have a class relation. So, I mean, what this means is that working people, right, if you're like a gay person who is just wearing jeans and a t-shirt and you, you know, you identify in, in a way that says you're not somehow <laughs> the reactionary cause of all the problems. This was also instinctively known, right? In the gay community, nobody actually went around yelling at their individual friends who weren't queer enough. It was like everybody was accepted. Like everybody was the exception, right? So it was just like, you know, you're, you're okay though, right? <laughs> um, and everybody was, was okay as, as accepted individuals. And that's because there just wasn't a framework to talk about these things because we weren't able to talk about capitalism and how it affected social relationships. So, the other thing is that this puts an incredible amount of pressure on non-binary people and genderqueer people. This idea that you are who you are because you are a challenge to the system. Your very existence is a challenge to the system, which everybody who's genderqueer knows. But to have this put upon you as, as um, you know, in some ways it's, it puts you on a pedestal and in other ways it puts you in real danger, right? I mean, I've said this before, but, you know, my, my partner, uh, who is non-binary, was attacked and, um, and was really upset about it. And when they went to school, the, uh, a faculty member just said, oh, be joyous. You're, you're genderqueer, right? I mean, like, you should be filled with joy about who you are. And, right? I mean, so, so it was, it's, it's a way of undermining um, people's suffering as well. And it's a way of not listening. The other aspect that you highlight too is how often Marxists have been guilty of accusing people of being reactionary um, or of like uh, aligning working class politics through their affect or their presentation of gender. Is that am I understanding that correctly? I saw this less amongst amongst Marxists, but to a certain to a certain extent, it was the opposite. I mean, I, I, I guess, but in a certain sense, it was the opposite. It was, you know, if you 
dress in a particular way that if you dress in a normative way, then you're working class. And if you aren't normative, (laughs) then you're not working class, which is also not true, right? I mean, the working class is very queer. The working class is very non-binary. And the working class is really, is everything. Yeah. So that was, that was a false reversal of the problem. So this idea that you're going to walk into a room full of Marxists and it's all going to be people in like jeans and t-shirts. And if somebody is queer, then they're just, you know, it's like a bourgeois affectation. And this comes from actually the sort of problems in really existing socialist societies, as, as they're called, with the homophobia that existed in those. So there was this idea that any kind of flamboyance, any kind of femininity was some kind of bourgeois affectation. So there was a holdover that we kind of need to be sort of dour and, and not very fanciful, uh, which is often not the aesthetic in the queer community. The next axiom that you talk about is the binary is not the problem and non-binary thinking is not the solution. So can you elaborate more on that? There was this, this problem at the time. I feel like this has gotten better as well, where everything was that being non-binary and the third way, right? Not looking at one side or the other, but finding third ways was the answer. And you know, as somebody who was a union activist and as somebody when I was a grad student, I was on strike, right? I was a striking grad student. Nothing will teach you about how that is untrue more than being on a picket line, right? <laughs> the, there, there is no third way. There's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a which side are you on problem, right? And so we can't just throw away that. Which side are you on problem? Oh, well, that's just binary thinking, We need to be more nuanced about it or something along those lines. So I was certainly responding to that kind of phony post-structuralist thinking, if you will, actually, that was being applied for really opportunistic ways and, you know, to cross picket lines. And so, yes, there are times, particularly times politically, when there are sides. And that's why when I say solidarity means taking a side, there's a binary at that moment. Right. There's a binary between, you know, Antifa and fascists. There's a binary there going on. I, I don't want to have a nu- nuanced analysis when I'm fighting fascists. So once again, these are things that everybody kind of knew. Nobody was arguing that. Well, not nobody. I mean, sometimes people did, but there wasn't clarity around this. And so what we're really talking about is rich analyses and an understanding when things are. I don't want to use the term dialectically related um, because in, in many ways I'm, I'm, I'm saying something that, that sounds good to most people, but at the same time, it, it doesn't really explain things. But mutually consistent, right? Mutually consistent and or groups that have contradictions among them. So, I mean, there's already, if you're talking about like a, a, a strike, you're already talking, I mean, strikers are people that have tensions among them, right? They are a unified group of people that are fighting another unified group of people, but there are tensions and complexities amongst them. So you don't want to erase those tensions and complexities as well. And that's the complexity that I'm looking towards. So even when we're thinking about in terms of sides, there's complexity on each side and, and complexities that need to be taken into consideration for us to build solidarity with one another. 
Well, then you write for your sixth axiom towards a queer Marxist future that Marxists must stand against trans-exclusionary radical feminism, or what is often just called TERFs, which I, I would say it seems really obvious today, but I imagine when you were writing this, maybe not as much. Yeah, no, it, it, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. And I think that this question was, what, what was happening was that people were deciding this based on emotion um, they, an instinct. There was this feeling that these turf people were probably not the people that you wanted to get behind, mostly because everybody who was a good Marxist understood that that trans people were oppressed in this situation. There was this kind of gut instinct that was a good instinct, but I wanted to back it up with analysis. And, you know, there have been many other, I mean, there's, there's a lot of, there's this whole group of young trans Marxists that are coming up that are addressing these questions. And it's, it's really fantastic, but also um, young trans Marxists, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trans, right? So young trans Marxists wanted to focus on other things. And I feel that it falls on cis people to answer these questions to uh, around TERFs in particular, right? To, to fight these violent people, right? We don't need to have our, our, our comrades on the line fighting these, these really violent and cruel people. You know, at the time it wasn't, it wasn't really thought of and, and, it, and, it, and it seemed, well, we wanna, we wanna really be there for these people, but at the same time, we, we care about, about, about women as, as childbearers and all these other sorts of things. So you can see how the concept of a gender critical feminism started weaseling its way in. This also was the case because people hadn't understood Judith Butler. Marxists hadn't underst understood Judith Butler at the time. And so there was this idea that there was a separation between there, were, there was gender, which was socially constructed and sex, which was this real physical thing, right? This, this real form that, you know, exists somewhere in, 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 in the heavens of some kind of like true thing called, you know, the sexed body. And the insight that Butler has, it's really important that we can't lose and that now we don't really have to worry about it because I think that this is kind of very broadly taken up is that the body is also socially constructed, right? That the body is socially constructed. The body is how gender is expressed. The body is how gender is understood. So these, this idea of separating gender and the body is completely artificial. It's completely, I mean, and doing it in the, in the name of science is ridiculous that there are male bodies and there are female bodies and and these are two separate types of things and they never meet up you know with one another means that there's no intersex folks and it, it, it this is a religious type of thinking this is not a scientific type of thinking and luckily scientists have now shown this so it's much easier to make those arguments and if anybody if anybody is a turf at this point, you have to really question, and people are questioning their deeper commitments, right, to inclusive politics in general and to science, right, to feminism, right? There was just uh, uh, some, some turfs went and to just today attacked a rape crisis center for having gender neutral bathrooms, right? So, really. Yeah. And so even as I said before, it seems like maybe today this is pretty much um, just accepted. It doesn't mean that we don't still need to really stake this claim and keep TERFs out of our movements. And I really appreciate what you're saying throughout is like the consistent theme here is 
solidarity means taking sides. Which side are you on? And like, how do we make our side as broad, big, inclusive as possible? And would it include TERFs? At least not in my, my movement. No. No, it doesn't. And, and I mean, they're really kind of making it easy for us because they're aligning with the right. <laughs> so what we're seeing is that this turfdom is an indicator of a movement towards the right. You really want to make these hard arguments. And, but once again, these arguments become quite ir- irrational after a, certain, after a certain point. And you, you do start seeing people moving towards the right on a whole host of issues. To me, it's a, it's, it's a marker to see where people are going. You want to move people back from turfism, but really, honestly, at this point, if they're going towards turfism, they're really going away from any kind of Marxist politics in general anyway, right? Because Marxist capital doesn't care about identities. It even talks about capital as a personification, only insofar as the capitalist is a personification of the system. He's, he openly says that these are per- personifications, right? So with the kind of slippery shifting that happens in the capitalist system of identities, declassing, this is not Marxian to say, no, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hold strong on these particular trans-historic identities. I mean, what Marxist says that? What Marxist says, oh, well, this trans-historic identity is really important. The next axiom is queer communitarianism should be replaced with queer political demands. Yeah. And this is something that is maybe still not so so popular. I'm not a proponent of communitarianism and for the same reason that I'm not a proponent of the family. I think of communities as larger extended families. I mean, that's really what they are. And when we talk about in the queer community, when we would talk about, there I am saying it, right? And the, we would talk about your chosen family or your extended family. And the bottom line is that what that's really saying is that you need a family, that, that you're not you're not taken care of through the system that you live in. You're not taken care of through broader society that you need to rely on this network of people that know you in order to survive. And as a Marxist, I'm fighting for something that is for justice and freedom from exploitation that goes way beyond that. This also gets into the way that queer people were talking about this at the time, which was this idea that abolishing the family would, would abolish capitalism. And this is another theme that I have in the book. And that's that, yes, capital needs the family, but not always in every, in every instance, right? We have workers living in dormitory. And so long as those workers go to work every day. Capital doesn't really care if they're having sex with one another. And workers that are living in sex-segregated dormitories are having to take care of one another. What, what capital cares about is the social reproduction and not having to incur those costs, not having to, to incur the costs of a laborer's life as much as possible to be able to drive wages down as low as possible. So we can have situations where the instances where the family is abolished, but then reconstituted in different ways. So on one hand, I am for family abolition. On the other hand, what I'm really for when I say that is the socialization of reproductive labor (laughs) across society. It actually goes back to the axiom um, about language And that is that when we talk about the queer community, we're talking about a local queer community. We're talking about its local challenges, its local linguistic needs. On one hand, we do still live locally, and and those things are important, but we also live transnationally. We live connected to the queer people who are 
involved in industrial production around the world and, and distribution. In that sense, this idea of queer community is, is, is a bit of a bit of a, a necessary fiction under, under capitalism, and it needs to be understood as not an end goal, but a mechanism of survival for, for the present day. The next one that you talk about is queer Marxism is not the analysis of queer consumption habits. Yeah, this is also a bit of a time capsule here. I, I was also just kind of losing it during that moment, and really the moments before from like, you know, 2010 on, where there was this real desire and this comes actually from older queer people. So older queer people were thinking in terms of their youth, which was before the, the, before the boss's offensive, post Stonewall, where being queer was connected to the idea of being radical through identity constitution alone. And so there was this lamenting of the normalness of queerness that had happened and, and, and occurred that the normalization of being LGBT was really problematic. And, and of course, that normalization under in, in a neoliberal system means that all of a sudden you become a market segment for capital that's trying to sell things to you. So what was happening at the time was sort of a lot of dismissiveness towards queer people, rainbow capitalism, as it were, but really focused on rainbow consumerism. Like the, the, once again, it was look at all these middle-class people going and buying stuff. And my argument was simply, well, yeah, they're buying stuff because they're middle-class, not because they're gay people, right? Um, so I, it, this also is not a category of analysis for Marxists. Like we look at production. We don't morally condemn consumers. That's not really, that's not part of a Marxist analysis. So I found it very strange that Marxists um, in the early 2010s were immediately going to that buy nothing day kind of critique, right? You know, that consumerist analysis. It was, like I said, a bit of a time capsule. That's not so much the way that we... The idea that, you know, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism is a, is a, is a common phrase that people understand now. So it's, it's not really a problem anymore. And I think that those of us working on this social reproduction side of things have won that debate. I do agree that it seems like people have accepted that. However, I wonder how much in terms of practicing solidarity and like what they believe actually changes the system, it's, it's catching up. If you hear people talking about Amazon... Like, well, I just don't shop on Amazon. It's like that consumer individual mindset seems to still be the framework that people operate in terms of like how they believe social change happens. No, no. I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. And I really should say that at least Marxists talking about gender issues are no longer talking in those terms. But I don't think that the gender, I think that the general public is still talking about solutions in a consumer context. Uh, certainly. And I think that this is because of the relative weakness of the, the labor, not just the, the, the labor movement as a physical manifestation of our politics, but the ideas, the, the education that you get from being a part of a labor, from being part of the labor movement, right? Being part of this kind of politics. So when you don't have that, you don't have any kind of Marxist economic training. So what you end up with is, well, how can I make a difference? And that's buying the right stuff, shopping here, not shopping there. And people who feel, feel powerless will, will grasp at any kind of power. 
And I, I think that it's an overall sense of powerlessness and amongst the working class that leads us to thinking in terms of consumerism. And certainly also that is the propaganda from the ruling class is that, you know, buy this type of product and you're a better person. So I, it's no surprise. But my issue was that Marxists were talking this way. And to me, that was just inherently anti-Marxist, because if the Marxists can't get the Marxist analysis right, then how do you explain the Marxist analysis to non-Marxists so that you can have these kinds of con conversations? Your next axiom is queer politics must oppose imperialism with a queer face. This is also one that thankfully has really taken off. There was this pinkwashing of Israel was going on at the time, the pinkwashing of the Iraq war, we were being used. Queer people were being used in order to sell certain variants of, of nationalism and in the United States uh, and imperialism. And I think that we're much more aware of that these days. I think that that's, it, it, it's common amongst the movement itself that that's not acceptable. But there's another thing going on here, and that's that queer internationalism is a real possibility. Queer internationalism, and this actually leads to the 10th, which, which we'll talk about next, uh, the 10th axiom. But if you are a part of a imperialist force <laughs> that is terrorizing other working people, right, and other oppressed people around the world, then how are you in solidarity with the queer people in those regions? You're not. You're taught, you really are like a queer nationalist, not in the, in, the way that queer nation put it in the past of a nation of queer people, but a queer person that cares about your nation in the kind of like white nationalist kind of way. So um, yeah, I think that this is a lot more obvious. The problem of homo nationalism and Yasbir Puar's work was circulating at the time. And I wanted to be, to be really clear that this isn't possible. You can't both be a nationalist and, and queer and a leftist or a radical. And as you said, this segues really nicely into the 10th and final axiom, which is wherever there is solidarity with the goal towards eradicating expropriation, there is queer Marxism. Whether you know it or not, there's queer people that are working amongst you to eradicate expropriation. We're everywhere. Queer people are every, everywhere. So it really is a matter of how much is the Marxist movement, how much is the labor movement going to embrace the queer people that are already in it, that are already fighting for it? And as soon as the labor movement does that, as soon as the Marxist movement does that, it's queer Marxism, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a queer internationalist movement. Wherever there are people that are, that are, that are queer, that are working against ex expropriation, and they are in every movement, then you have queers in your Marxism and you need to embrace them and you need to bring queer people into, into the movement as queer people. Not saying, well, you can, be, you can be queer, but don't bring that in here or whatever, but embracing people in their, their full selves. That is what Marxism has to be. It is what a revolutionary movement has to be. There's, there is no revolution, revolutionary movement without it. And my goal, my hope, is that eventually you won't need the term queer Marxism because Marxism will be synonymous with queer power. Yeah, and I'm wondering, just as like a final thought to ask you, because it sounds like in some instances you feel like there has been definite progress here. What is your assessment today of queer Marxism? Is it happening? Where does it need to be furthered? 
Yeah, this is kind of funny because as soon as people started talking about queer Marxism, people were already rolling their eyes about like, now we're in a post-queer Marxism world and we don't need that anymore. And it's like, come on, we just started talking about this. <laughs> um, you know, um, but it does kind of lead towards that because the whole idea is to eradicate the idea of queer Marxism and make Marxism queer. That's the whole point of queer Marxism is to make queer normal, right? Um, to make fabulous usual. We can be fabulous as usual, right? So this is a question, it's, it's different in different places in the world. It is different depending on the power of the queer movements and as they're called LGBTI movements in, in lots of places in the world. And it's very site specific. But what this axiom does is it gives a little piece that can be easily translated to queer people that are fighting in movements to start articulating to people who are maybe homophobic and transphobic in their movements anywhere in the world and say, hey, we need you to really fully include us in, right? We need, we, we need to be a part of this. We want to be a part of this. Why would you kick us out of this? Why would you separate us from this? Why would you not address our concerns? We do have to worry about what some people are calling red-brown movements now. And I think that is something that needs to be discussed. And that is that there is a part of, I don't want to just say the social democratic tradition, but there is parts of, a, of the less, usually less revolutionary traditions that think that queer people are some kind of extraneous outsider group and that the real people that need to be considered are families. Normal, American, or where, where, wherever the people are coming from that are giving this argument. Just normal, good, salts-of-the-earth people that live in families. And these are really gendered and romanticized frameworks. In some segments, it's been called normie socialism. But what it really is, is it's kind of an uplifting of the concept of the family. The idea that labor analysis implies the family. The idea that good, hardworking Americans exist in, in families. The idea that the working class relies upon the, the family structure, and therefore the family structure is inherently good because the working class relies on it. I mean, the working class relies on the family structure because the capitalist class relies on the working class relying on the family structure. But in that process, and this is something else that I talk about through the work of um, Barbara Jean Field using Gramsci, that ideology comes through navigating the material terrain of our lives. So you grow up in a family and it's your parents, let's say, it's, it's your parents who are the ones that are fighting for you. So you, you grow to love and, and depend upon your parents. And in the same way that when your boss gives you a wage, you, you really want that wage. So when we're talking about something like abolishing the family, sounds like abolishing wages, right? For many people, it's the good thing that keeps you alive right now. So it sounds like we're trying to take something away from them that they depend on to live there can be a doubling down on ideas of family. And this is something that needs, this needs to be struggled against. 
But at the same time, it really needs to be impressed upon that nobody is taking your family away from you. Nobody is taking the people that you love away from you. Nobody is telling you that you shouldn't love the people that you love in your life. We're just saying that we need to look at why the world has been structured this way and why people are pushed out of it. Because queer people are pushed out of their families. So while some working people are the family becomes that support network that keeps them alive for other queer people. I mean, for, for other working people who are queer, they're pushed out onto the streets and have nothing. So we need something that is more reliable. And that's a socialist society, not one where care and love is based on the whims of sex and birth. Our guest is Holly Lewis. The book is The Politics of Everybody, Feminism, Queer Theory, and Marxism at the Intersection. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite books I've picked up in a long time. I really appreciate you being on Labor Wave and hope we could have you again on the show. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's been great talking with you. <laughs>